Um, question for you, and you don't have to answer it, but why do people reject Christ? I mean, why would people say that they reject Christ? I suppose if you ask the guy on the street or the gal on the street, they give you a whole host of reasons. Things I've heard from people is, well, you know, the Bible was just written by men. Jesus never resurrected from the grave. Christians are hypocrites. And on and on and on, the reasons come, right? I mean, we could add to them, why do people reject Christ? And, and people say, I mean, if I actually saw him, all right, then I might actually respond. And yet, when he was actually here on earth, people didn't. So is the problem, do people reject Christ because of something outside of themselves? Jesus hasn't done enough. God hasn't shown me enough, etc., etc. Or is the problem with them? We come to this passage in Luke chapter 11. You have notes. If you want to look at the notes, you can. But if not, that's fine too. Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to the end of the chapter. Jesus is going to talk about people and why they reject Christ. Um, Tim actually picked up on the first section of this last week. So let me, let me just go back very, very quickly and read for you verse 15 and 16 of Luke chapter 11. So Jesus has just done a miracle. And like Tim had said in his message last week, nobody could deny that something happened. So you use one of two approaches. The first approach that was used here is you explain it away, right? And, and so in verse 15, some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. So that's one way to do it. You know, people have always done that, haven't they? Oh, look, we know something must have happened after Jesus died because of the disciples getting turned on and this brand new movement happening. But they explain it away and say, but it wasn't the resurrection. That's what they do, right? So this strategy has been gone on for years and years. And that's what happens here. They explain it away by saying it's demons. That's one approach. So some Jews sought to discredit Christ by claiming that his miraculous signs were demonic. You can explain it away. The other thing you can do is you can accept it, but you can say it's not enough. Notice verse 16. And others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. So you have another whole group of people coming on saying, hey, hey, look. All right, Jesus, cool miracle. But we want more. We want you to work our side of the street. That's exactly what they were saying. So at the end of the day, it wasn't submitting to the lordship of Christ. It was manipulating Jesus to work your side of the street. If you do enough, maybe I'll believe. The problem is you, Jesus. It's not me. And Jesus comes after this one in verse 29. Look at what he says. And as the crowd were gathering, was increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. 
It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given it but the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So, Jesus says this in verse 29. The message is sufficient in itself and superior to all others. Um, they said, we want more signs from you. And Jesus said, the only sign you need is the sign of Jonah. Now, I have to tell you this. When you read what's ha- what, what, what Matthew says about this account, clearly the sign of Jonah includes the resurrection, right? Matthew will tell us that. But I would argue that the sign also includes the preaching of Jonah. And what Luke is focusing on here in this passage is this. You've got people that are saying, Jesus, more, more proof, more proof, more proof. And Jesus is saying, you don't need more proof. You just need to respond to the message. The message is enough. That was the sign of Jonah. Jonah walked, I mean, like, how, how um, excited was Jonah about the message that he gave to the Ninevites? Was he passionate? He wanted them to really trust in God? No. 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. 40, can you explain that? Shut up. 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. You know what I mean? I mean, he's just moving through the city as quick as he can. It gets done. He says, well, let God sit sitting on the hill and watch this place burn. And God had a different agenda, didn't he? And Jesus is saying, all you need is to hear the message. So the problem is not Christ. Secondly, oh, and then he goes on to say this. The queen of Sheba travels this long distance to sit and to hear wisdom from Solomon. Jonah comes and preaches this message, and the Ninevites all repent. And Jesus says this. Solomon was a great king. Jonah was a great prophet. But I am greater than all of them. So not only is the message all you need, it's the best message of all time, folks. It doesn't get any better than Jesus saying, it's me. Do you see? And so here you have a group saying, do more, do more. And Jesus says, you need to just accept the ultimate message, which comes through me. You know, that gives me encouragement. When I talk with people who don't know Christ, think they might be smarter than me. Maybe they've had more schooling than me or know this or know that or they're scientists or they're this or they're historians or whatever the case may be. Do you ever get intimidated? And at the end of the day, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about evidences for our faith. I'm all for that. I'm, all for, I'm into that stuff, actually. But at the end of the day, what they need is the message. And you give them the message, and it's through the message that God works. So you have people saying, do more. And Jesus said, you don't need more. Because the problem is not the more. 
You just need to respond to the message. Let me tell you, Jesus says, where the problem is. The problem is your heart. Look what he says here in verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a peck measure, but on the lampstand in order that those who enter may see the light. I mean, look, folks, how good is a flashlight when your lights go out if you don't turn it on? Right? I mean, I'm no great mechanic or carpenter or any of those kinds of things, but I know that if a flashlight's going to work, you got to flip it on. I know that much. The lamp of your body is your eye. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you may be darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it shall be wholly illumined as when a lamp illumines you with its rays. Now, there's a fair amount of debate as to what is going on here. But at the end of the day, at least we can say this. The problem is not Christ. The problem is the heart. And if the heart, when it hears the message, you know how Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear? Perhaps what we could say in this text is, he who has eyes to see, let him see. The problem is, you're not receiving the message, because you have a rebellious heart. That's the problem. And if you don't respond to the light and turn on the lamp, your whole life will be a life of darkness. But if you respond, your whole life will be illumined. So as our sister shared today, Christianity's not easy, is it? But we have Jesus. And he gives us hope. And he gives us direction. And he gives us purpose. And he gives us peace. And it's, it's hard. Life is hard, of course, of course. And he says, the problem is not Jesus. The message is the ultimate message. The problem is your response to Jesus from a heart that's rebellious. All right. Okay, Jesus, I got it. So a lot of these kind of irreligious people don't quite get it. But I'm sure the religious people get that one, right? So religious people get that. I mean, because religion, if you're religion, religious, you're closer to Jesus than the irreligious, right? Not exactly. <laughs> right? Because notice what happens next. Jesus has just given that message. It's all about responding to me from the heart. Um. Just a quick analogy. Several years ago, I was, um, was at a funeral. And one of the songs that we sang was um, Frank Sinatra's I'll Have It Your Way. Now, I don't know about you. But I don't want that one sung at my, at my funeral. <laughs> Sherry, honey, I don't want that one sung at my funeral. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's the problem. <laughs> Isn't it? People want it their way. When instead, God has to work in their hearts, the rebels will say, I want it your way. I want you, Jesus. I want you to forgive me and change me and take me and use me. Right? 
That's what it's about. Well, Jesus says that, you would think that the religious leaders would at least have this one down, but not exactly. Look what happens in verse 37. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. So, Jesus is unburdening his heart, saying it's all about from the heart, seeing the truth and responding. Some guy said, you want to have lunch? Sure. And he goes in and Jesus sits down, man, he's ready to eat. And this guy, this guy is deeply troubled. Like, what's Jesus doing? Everybody knows that somewhere, although it's not in the Old Testament, but somewhere after the Old Testament, it should have been in the Old Testament. It's not, but it should have been. That you have to ceremonially wash your hands. Now, look, this is never a good excuse, children, for saying, well, Jesus didn't wash his hands before the meal. That's not the point of this text. So, kids, you can't use the text that way. Won't work. Won't work. All right? It's not about that. They weren't saying, look, have clean hands so bacteria. That wasn't what they were saying. They were just saying, you've got to ceremonially be pure before you eat this. And everybody knows any good Jew does this before he eats a, eats a meal. Do you know what, folks? There is no passage in the Old Testament that will tell you that. Not one. But they thought it was a nice add-on just to protect the integrity of the text. Do you think we ever do that? Do you think religion ever adds on, maybe under the guise of protecting the text? <laughs> Years ago, you may not believe this, but it's true. I was at a conference, and they were doing some breakout sessions, and they had a, uh, a pastor, well-known uh, Baptist pastor that was speaking. <laughs> and, and he was saying, you know, in my church, one of the things we do is, I know the Bible says this much, okay? Meaning I can't commit adultery, can't lie. I mean, God, God's very explicit on some things, right? No quote question. So, I know the Bible says this, but what I do is we add a whole other set of strata. Because we figure if you keep these things, then maybe you also will keep these things. I'm sitting there going to myself, what is this guy doing? I mean, that's like what the Pharisees did. Maybe for good motives. I mean, I'm not, not attacking their motives necessarily. But that's absolutely wrong, folks. The religious establishment had so layered the truth of God that when the Messiah, God himself, came in the flesh, they couldn't recognize him. Isn't that scary? Being religious may get you farther from Christ, not closer. So Jesus, in his wonderful way, goes for the juggler in verse 39. Jesus doesn't say in verse 39, oh, sorry, pass the pail. Because Jesus is much more concerned that they would know the truth. 
And so, yeah, he is harsh here. Okay, that's, that's, I, I don't, that's true. But it's a loving harsh, isn't it? Listen to what he says as he exposes legalism. He says a couple things. He talks to the Pharisees, first of all, in verses 39 and 41. External religious traditions, the problem is with the legalists, they emphasize external religious traditions while harboring internal greed. Look what he says. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You know one of the themes you'll find running through the New Testament? It's a concern that Jesus has, that Paul has, that Peter has, that Jude has. I mean, they all have it. Oh, John, they all have the same concern. That there's people that become part of religious movements primarily to manipulate and use people for their own benefit. I had a guy tell me years ago, guys go into the ministry either because they have a calling or a pathology. I've often thought about that. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of scary. But, but it's possible for people to be tied up into religion, and what they'll do is they'll cloak, they'll look good on the outside, they'll be concerned about reputation, they'll smile when they should smile and be sad when they should be sad, and do all the kinds of things. And, but inside, their heart is just stirring up with greed. You know what, folks? If I put my emphasis on washing my hands. And I look at you because you don't wash your hands. But I do. I can feel pretty good about myself. And I don't have to deal with my heart. Do you see? That's what a legalist does. Does the hands. Tim Hupp doesn't wash his hands like I do. There must be something wrong with Tim. I don't care what else he does. He doesn't, you know, but that's what happens. And in the word used here, when it, when it says Jesus came in, the Pharisee was amazed, it's the word that's used throughout when people respond to miracles. They go like, holy mackerel, look at what Jesus just did. And this guy, when he sees the washing of hands, he goes like, holy mackerel. Because his whole life is bound up by that. So he doesn't have to deal with his heart. But his heart is marked by greed. I'll be honest with you. I don't want to be too hard on this guy. Because I see myself there sometimes. You know? Maybe a standard I have that you don't have that's not explicitly mentioned in Scripture. Because you don't do it and I do. I can feel kind of good about myself. And my heart can be as far from God as imaginable. So, the emphasizing of the external while harboring internal sin. Greed in particular. Secondly, replacing what is central with what is peripheral. Look at verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees. For you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. I mean, these guys didn't miss a thing. Every little piece of every, I mean, I would have been a terrible Pharisee. 
in that angle. I just, I mean, I, I would be dropping these balls all over. But they, man, they had it all spelled out there, right? And yet you disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other. Jesus is okay with doing a tenth of all that stuff. Okay, okay. But it shouldn't be the primary focus. Is it possible to come to church and look, folks, we want everybody to give. Okay, so please. We're, there's a box in the back. We're happy for you to give. So please don't hear me say don't give. You know, I'm, not, I'm not against that. But is it possible for me to come to church, to put something in the box, thinking I've kind of done what I need to do, and I can go live my life. Is it possible to have certain kinds of things which aren't bad enough of themselves, say, well, I do that, but I miss this. I miss being a per person who, who furthers the justice of God and expresses God's love to others. No, no, no. But I did put money in the box on Sunday. I, I'm glad you put the money in the box. You shouldn't leave that undone. But this is what's most central. Because if this is right, you'll do those peripheral things that are important. But you won't miss the central. Do you see with a legalist? A legalist, I've, I've thought about this. The problem with legalism is it always adds and subtracts. I add what I can do and you can't so I feel better about myself. And I subtract what is most central to the gospel. See, if I do that, I don't have to deal with my heart. It's exactly what goes on here, folks. Goes on to say in verse 43, seeking praise and honor from people. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They love it when they come walking in and people say, would you come sit up front? Oh, no, 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 I, 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 I couldn't do that. Please? Oh, okay. And then so I had to go on like, yeah, yes. Bring it on, man. Did you ever do that? I don't know about you, but um, I fall to that. Easy enough to do. Verse 44, defiling those under their influence. Look at what he says. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Now, there was a law in both Leviticus and Numbers that talked about the fact is if you have a tomb, you shouldn't walk over it because you would be ceremonially unclean as a Jew when you did that. Okay? That was, that was a law. No, no, no question about that one. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Without commenting on all that in particular, it's a great image. And here's the image. If somebody walks over a tomb not knowing it's a tomb, they're unclean, but they don't know it. Correct? If somebody follows false religion, legalism, and doesn't know it's false, they're deceived and they don't know it. And Jesus is saying legalism is not only then a personal issue, it is an interpersonal issue. And a legalist has not only dealt with his own heart or her own heart, 
But on the one hand, they are using people for accolades and they are abusing people because they'll never come to the truth because they think what they believe is okay. How many of us have come out of denominations in which now when you look back, you say, they didn't teach the truth about the gospel. But for years, I thought I was okay. Because I was trusting the tomb I was standing on. And I thought I was clean and I was unclean. I didn't even know it. Now, false religion is as bad as no religion, folks. That's the truth. And Jesus, when he sits down, it's not like he's angry and mad and say, you stinking legalist. No, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus, out of a passion for the truth and a heart for those Pharisees, is saying, guys, this is where you are. It is a heart of legalism that you are both hurting yourself, dishonoring God, and hurting others. Now that's serious. Well, the Pharisees, sometimes when you hear the word Pharisees, maybe you think um, religious leaders, pastors, that kind of a thing. The Pharisees is just the name of a group. It'd be kind of like in my day. My, my, my guess is most of us in here would say we're evangelical, right? We're evangelicals. And I, I'm an, I am a proud, avowed evangelical. Okay, that's true. But whether you're up speaking or just attending, you're still an evangelical. In the ancient world, when you were a Pharisee, you didn't have to be a religious leader. You could have just been somebody sitting in the pew. It was, you were a card-carrying Pharisee. And in this case, you were a legalist. So Jesus is talking to the guy that invited him in about the Pharisees in general. But there's some specialists there. There's some teachers of the law. These guys know the Bible. And they're a little bit upset because they're saying, Jesus is getting pretty hard. So look what they say. Verse 45. And one of the lawyers, that would be one of the, like pastors, if you will. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. And Jesus says back, well, sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to do that. Guys, I, I guess I should just leave. Is that what he does? <laughs> Jesus says, well, while we're on it, <laughs> and if you want to talk about leaders, okay, I'll talk to them too. <laughs> Boom, and he's off. And, and so now he gives a series of other issues. Look at what he does here in verse 46. First of all, he talks about overburdening others without any personal concern. Verse 46. But Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. What does that tell you about these leaders? These leaders are into their own agenda. They push that agenda on you, whether you can keep it or not, because they can. And after they push it on you, they don't do a single thing to help you. They just say, go and be filled on your own. And Jesus is saying, okay, leaders of the Pharisees, 
You know what you guys do? You not only have your legalism, which you place on them, but because at the end of the day, you don't care about them. You don't even help them with the burdens. How does that contrast with what Paul says in Galatians 6? If a brother is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, not perfect, but people walking in the spirit, you, you go and you tenderly restore that person. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. See how different that is from this? This is all about, here's what you got to do. Go do it. When Christianity is all about talking, walking with people as we seek to honor Christ and bearing burdens in the process. It's totally different, folks. Verses 47 to 51, Jesus just exposes more of their hypocrisy. Let's look what he says. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Consequently, you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute. In order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Whoa! Do you hear what he's saying here? They said, hey, Jesus, you're offending us with what you're saying. Woe to you guys, because you add, and you don't even love the people. Let me tell you something else. You have been on the wrong side of history since the beginning. You act like you like the Apostle Paul, and you like Jesus, and you know, there's, look, folks, there's denominations around that will talk about Paul and Jesus, but not the Jesus and Paul of the Scriptures. One that they make up in their own mind. And Jesus says at the end of the day, you are against God because you're against the ultimate fulfillment, Jesus says, which is me. So go all the way back to Abel and run all the way up to Zechariah. Now you may say, well, Doug, that doesn't quite make sense because Zechariah is mentioned in Second Chronicles. Isn't that like about halfway through the Old Testament? The Jews broke their Old Testament down into three sections. Remember this? The law, the prophets, and the writings. You know what was the last book in the writings? Second Chronicles. So Jesus is saying from Abel, from the beginning of your Bible, all the way to the end. We might say from A to Z. There has always been this movement of people who said they're religious, but at the end of the day have attacked God's people and his prophets. And Jesus says, here I am, and you're doing it to me. And what I can tell you is this, the weight of all that culpability will fall on this generation, which is why in 70 AD there would be a judgment upon the nation with the destruction of Jerusalem. Because they, they missed out. So 
These guys just say, hey, you're offending us. And Jesus is saying, man, judgment's coming. Do something. Do you see? Verse 52. Verse 52. They prevent others from coming to the truth. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourself, and those who are entering in, you hindered. I, um, I have a very good friend who ministers in Beirut, Lebanon. A couple years ago, Sherry and I went over there to visit. I was a little bit nervous. I made sure my will was all done, just in case. Just, it's kind of, you know, you, you, certain places you go in the world, you go like, Lord, I really think you want me to be here, but I'm like a little bit nervous about being there. But went and had a wonderful time with pastors and telling their story of persecution. It was marvelous. Just, we just, we had a terrific time. But I asked him, I said, Raymond, who's your greatest opposition? You know what I was expecting him to say? <coughs> I was expecting him to say, oh, Doug, the Muslims. And they're like, they're off the charts trying to, Get us all the time. Now, and I know in certain cultures that's true. Okay, I'm not denying that. He said, um, it's the Christian church. It's the Marianites. I mean, they're the ones that blocked, came in and persecuted us and beat up our people and shut down our church. And, da, da, da. and you think to yourself, you know, people outside of Christianity would just say, you're all Christians, wouldn't they? <laughs> but when you're in Christianity, you begin looking around saying, not exactly. Matter of fact, not at all. And there's a whole host of individuals that use the label Christian who are like these individuals. They not only come to the truth because they say, oh, who could believe? Everybody knows that the death of Christ and resurrection, it's all symbolism. Everybody knows that. No, we don't know that. But there's a whole group of people out there that will tell you that. So not only do they not come to the truth, when one of their parishioners goes over and says, you know, I was reading my Bible. Ah, don't believe that. There's those nutty evangelicals. That's what happens. And Jesus looks at this group and he says, you know what? Irreligious people do not value Christ and do not see that the problem is with themselves. Religious people do not value Christ. And do not see that the problem is themselves. And what we need are eyes to see and ears to hear. And for God to work in our hearts... So we can see what is really true. If you're here today. And you don't know Jesus Christ. I want you to know something. You're not exactly like them. In its expression. But you are in the essence. Because rebellion. By irreligious people. And legalism by religious people. Is endemic to humanity folks. Do you know that? If you don't know Christ, it's not at all unusual to go down one of these ways and say Jesus can't be true because of my religious view or Jesus can't be true because he hasn't proved himself enough or blah, 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 blah. And at the end of the day, that's not the problem. 
You need to fall on your knees before God and say, God, help me. God, help me to see what is true and to respond to your spirits working in my life. That's what you need. But you know, the majority of the people in here have become forgiven followers of Christ. I know that. You love Christ. I've met you. I know your love for him. And I would just say, If you're like me, I can sometimes be like a Pharisee. I'm saved. I'm secure. I love Christ. Heaven is my home. He's in the process of transforming me. All true. A man, when Doug Finkbeiner shifts into neutral, I'll have it my way. That's the truth. And it is possible in studying and studying that, that, that I can feel better on a particular application, but you're not doing exactly like me, and I can become legalistic with all that stuff, folks. I can do it, can't we? We can all do that. And it's fine to talk about our convictions. We should. I'm not opposed to that. But we need to do it with humility and keep central what is central. And hearts that are just overwhelmed that God has saved me. I get to follow Jesus. And we can do it together and learn in the process. Jesus' warnings are always warnings of hope. If they are heeded. Father.